It's a great way to begin the year, recognizing the faithfulness of our God. And to that end, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra, and we'll consider verse one, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, if you didn't know that there was an Ezra in the Bible, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, it's in between Chronicles and Esther. Somewhere there, before Psalms. All right, Ezra chapter 1, and we will be reading verse 1 up to verse 11. And the reason I've chosen the book of Ezra for our first sermon series for 2023 is that it is a new year. I just read Ezra 1 as part of my own personal devotions because I go through the Machain um, Bible reading calendar, and it's, it's a passage that talks about beginnings. See, just like every year, every new year is filled with the promise of growth and development. And at the same time, the prospect is tempered by the dread of the unknown. And in many ways, that's how the exiles returning to Jerusalem probably felt. They were eager to rebuild Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. But they also faced great uncertainty. And in many ways, we are in a comparable situation. Like the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, we are rebuilding community after a period of exile. And we are looking forward for what God is going to do in our midst this year. But in the back of our minds, we're also wondering, so what struggles, what challenges will we be facing in 2023? And so the question that arises, in my mind at least, is what would be the basis for our confidence and courage as we face the challenges of this new year. And to that end, we read Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, 
King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar all brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. And what is it saying? Well, in a nutshell, it is reminding us that we can face the future confidently because our sovereign God is faithful. We can entrust ourselves to God's covenant love. And you find that in verse 1. The author of Ezra is emphatic that the return to Jerusalem takes place in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. It reminds us that God had kept his promise that he made over 70 years before to a people who only deserved his wrath. Ezra and Nehemiah, and just so you know, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are regarded as one book. And we call it Ezra and Nehemiah because it's named after the two main figures of those two books. But they belong together as one. Ezra and Nehemiah portrays the return to Jerusalem as a second exodus, as a mighty act of redemption. And that is why you've got what looks like um, a wedding registry <laughs> from verse 6 to verse 11. They, they are noting the gifts of their neighbors and the return of the temple vessels to remind the Israelites how God had brought them out of Egypt laden with silver and gold, according to Psalm 105.37. They had plundered the Egyptians coming out of Egypt. And in the same way, God had brought his exiles out of Babylon, out of exile, back to the promised land, laden with treasure. It is meant to emphasize that God is absolutely determined to keep his word. And his word is not dependent on our performance. We're in Ezra chapter 1. I want you to turn one page back to Second Chronicles. Verse 30, chapter 36, verse 15 and 16. You need to remember, the people of Israel had gone into exile not because God had lost the battle to Marduk or any Babylonian god. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 explains why Jerusalem fell. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of their ancestors sent word to them, to the Israelites, through his messengers, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. 
He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and did not spare the young men or young women or elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his official. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall at Jerusalem. They burned all the palace palaces and destroyed everything of value there. That's the backdrop to Ezra chapter 1. And in fact, Ezra 1 repeats the words of 2 Chronicles 36 verse 22 to 23. It's the same, it's the same section because it wants to remind the people that God had every reason to cast them aside. And yet he refused to give up on them because of his faithful love. That's why Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is used throughout this passage. It is meant to remind us that God is the covenant God who will not give up on his people. Or in the words of the Jesus Story Bible, God loves his people with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And this is our confidence today. And it goes on. The text goes on to tell us, back to Ezra chapter 1, that God is not only determined to keep his word, he is also able to keep his word. See, all of us have good intentions, right? Some of you may have made resolutions, and I would be happy if you kept them until March. I've stopped doing resolutions because I could not get beyond the first two weeks of January. God is not like that. Notice what it says in Ezra 1 verse 1. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. It reminds us that God is so powerful that he is able to make the most powerful king of the day do his bidding. And no, Cyrus did not have a vision telling him what to do. The proclamation that we will read in verse 2 was part of a larger Persian policy to gain the loyalty of their subjects by accommodating their interests. So where the Babylonians would and Assyrians would displace the peoples from their homelands, the Persians wanted to present themselves as liberators. And integral to that was them encouraging the exiles to go back to their homelands and to rebuild their temples because they believed in a plurality of gods. And therefore, if the gods were happy, then the Persian Empire would flourish. And so as we read verse 2, it sounds very biblical. Notice what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
the God who is in Jerusalem, well, slightly not biblical. You may go and at Jude, in Judah, any of his people among you may go up to the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God, um, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Sounds very biblical, but Cyrus was no convert. He was a savvy politician. And his strategy made geopolitical sense. But the writer of Ezra wants us to recognize that the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. God was sovereignly working out his purposes on behalf of his people through this strategy. So for those of you theology geeks, especially those of you who are reading Grudem right now, we call this compatibilism. It is God working in and through the actions of men, even though they do not consciously obey God. And when we read this proclamation in light of the larger context of Scripture, we will see that there is much more going on. See, in Isaiah 45, the passage that Matt read earlier, Isaiah prophesied that, God, that Cyrus would cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt about 150 years before Cyrus came on the scene. At that time, when Isaiah made the prophecy, Assyria was supreme. Babylon was just beginning to become a world power. Jerusalem had not even been destroyed. And Isaiah didn't just make a lucky guess. God had told him he was going to exert his infinite power to give Persia ascendancy over Assyria and Babylon and put Cyrus on the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire. You need to recognize, God does not play dice with the universe. God knows the future the way a, an architect knows what a building would look like before the foundations are even laid. God knows it because he planned it himself. And Isaiah 45 is emphatic that God was sovereignly working out his plan through Cyrus, whom he raised to power in order to fulfill his plans. Not by making Cyrus a convert, but by working in and through Cyrus so that in some mysterious way that we cannot fully understand, Cyrus was running his empire. But God was sovereignly guiding his hand. And that's the reality that is our comfort here and now. When we look at the government and they're making policies that are contrary to Scripture, Look, let's agree. We don't agree with the government. But it is not reason for us to be afraid or resentful. The Bible also tells us that God has providentially placed our leaders in office. We don't understand. But God is in control, working out His purposes in ways that we do not fathom. And for those of us who like to predict the future because it gives us a sense of control, let's get real here. Only God knows the future, and no matter how well our predictions come true, we're still not in control. Our task as the people of God 
is to overcome evil by continuing to do good, trusting that our sovereign Lord is using our obedience to accomplish His purposes. Because the fact of the matter is, we do not often see what God is about. His word tells us that He is at work, both in the things we celebrate and in the decisions we cannot support. And if you ask, how can we be sure that God is at work? Well, the ultimate expression of God's sovereignty and faithful love is to be found on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate this morning at our Lord's table. On the cross of Jesus Christ, man did his worst. And through the ultimate evil of man rejecting and brutalizing God the Son incarnate, Jesus, the Son of God, purchased our salvation. As the disciples prayed, reflecting on Psalm 2, which Joel read earlier, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And don't miss this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that amazing? They did their worst. But in doing their worst, they did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. God used the evil actions of men in power to fulfill His plan. Friends, brethren, He is in control. We can entrust ourselves to Him. And I get that it can be hard to believe God is in control when you're frustrated and disappointed with the way your life has been going. I remember 1998. Some of you were not even born yet. I get that. I was in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and if you're in Kingston, Jamaica, thinking you're on vacation, you're not. Um, unless you've got family there, it's all good. But Kingston's not a vacation place. I was working there. I was alone a long way from home, and I was wondering to myself, what am I doing with my life? All my plans had fallen through, and I was stuck in a job I absolutely hated. I couldn't get out of it fast enough. But looking back now, 25 years after, I realized God had been shutting down my plans in order to wear down my stubborn resistance to His plans for me. But at the same time, magnificently, he used every step I took to run away from him in order to get me where I am right now. I don't understand it. But, I, but as I look back over the 25 years, the last 25 years of my life, I realized that God was thwarting me for my own good. And as hard as I pushed against him, he was actually using my foolish resistance to get me where he wanted me. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But one thing I know, God is working out his purposes, not yours. And his main purpose is to draw you to himself and to make you more like Jesus. 
We don't understand it. But God is at work even in the mundane events and the messy situations of our lives. Our God is in control of everything. And it is our privilege to entrust ourselves to him. Now, understand that entrusting ourselves to God means that we need to submit to his purposes regardless of the cost. To trust in God is to follow him all the way, just like these people who are listed in Ezra chapter 2. Not going to read it, but these are the people who recognized <coughs> that God had acted through Cyrus to keep his promise that Jerusalem and the temple would be, would be rebuilt. And so they left their homes and returned to Jerusalem. And this act involved sacrificial risk-taking. Put it in our terms, imagine a Ukrainian family who has lived in Guelph for 70 years. Going back to Jerusalem would be the equivalent of the grandkids of the original settlers who have grown up in Canada, leaving their careers, and taking their wives and kids back to Ukraine. They are going back to rebuild a city in ruins and to settle in a land they've maybe never visited in order to help reestablish a devastated society that would live under the shadow of Russian territorial ambitions. Would you go? <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to. Not too many people would want to. And so it's not surprising that only 42,360 people returned, according to verse, chapter 2, verse 64. That was a small fraction of the Jews living in exile. We don't know the people who are listed in Ezra chapter 2. They are the family of so-and-so. Here's the great thing. God knows them. God remembers their sacrifice. And these exiles who returned would tell us that genuine trust in God means that we follow God regardless of the cost. That was true then. It is true to this day. How were they able to do it? Well, look at verse 5. Then the family heads, chapter 1, verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. In the same way that God sovereignly worked in the heart of Cyrus to accomplish his purposes, so God sovereignly worked in the hearts of his people. It doesn't mean that the people who stayed behind were rejects. After all, you will learn that Ezra and Nehemiah actually came after this first return, much, much later. But the point of it is that God calls each of us to specific purposes. And we are responsible to follow along in faith. See, that's where community begins. That's where this exile community begins. With abandoning ourselves to the purposes of God. And these people listed in Ezra chapter 2 are our brethren, our fellow laborers. And like them... We are called by God to his purposes. And, and this is my prayer for all of us here. 
I hope that you are here at Crestwick because you believe that God has brought you here. That this is not simply a consumer choice based on the quality of the music, the niceness of the people, or that you somehow, some way like me. No. <laughs> I came to Crestwick because I believe God called me here. And by the same token, I hope you are here because you believe that God has called you here. And if you believe that God has called you here to be part of Crestwick, let me just issue a challenge to you. Will you not embrace your calling wholeheartedly by becoming an official member of Crestwick? I know church membership has become unnecessary in the eyes of many. But if we follow the example of the early church, it seems that everyone who demonstrated their faith in Christ through baptism was, in the words of Acts chapter 2, added to their number. As Mark Deaver would put it, membership in a local church is not an antiquated, outdated, unnecessary add-on to true membership in the universal body of Christ. Membership in a local church is intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church. Church membership does not save, but it is a reflection of salvation. In becoming a member of the church, we are grasping hands with each other to know and be known by each other. We are agreeing to help and encourage each other when we need to be reminded of God's work in our lives or when we need to be challenged about major discrepancies between our talk and our walk. Joining a church increases our sense of ownership of the work of the church, of its community, of its budget, and of its goals. We must begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more as a regular responsibility, becoming involved in one another's lives for the purposes of the gospel. And we would love for all of you to, be, to have ownership of the church's affairs to help us make decisions as full participants in the process. We'd love for you to be able to hold us accountable as we hold you accountable. So, pray about it. Talk to one of the elders or deacons in the next couple of weeks. And I hope you would commit yourself to this task of rebuilding this community of faith so that we may proclaim the gospel faithfully in Guelph and beyond. And for those of us who are already members of Crestwick, I hope we're not just members whose names are on a roll. Let us be active, engaged participants, submitting to God's call on our lives by our work in the church and by our representing the church in our neighborhoods. See, those who submitted to God's purposes are forever remembered in Ezra chapter 2 as those who sacrificed the comfort of their lives in exile to fulfill God's purpose of restoring His people to the land. They might have been few. They might have been weak and limited. But God was with them, manifesting His greatness through the canvas of their efforts to rebuild Jerusalem. And he was using them for far greater than they could even imagine. He was using them to accomplish his larger purpose of sending the Messiah, no less than his son, who would bring salvation to this world. 
That task needed a community of faith that was being generated in Jerusalem. And you and I, we have got the privilege of being part of an even greater exodus. Indeed, a greater covenant because of the salvation that Jesus, the Messiah, accomplished. And our God calls us to proclaim Christ and what he has done to all those around us. And that's why we are seeking to build community. It's not either or, it's both and. You see, as Paul Tripp points out, practical, transformational gospel understanding is a community project. The gospel is only ever known in the context of humble, approachable, and mutually dependent relationships with other believers. Brethren, this is our greatest witness to the community around us. Not just our gathered worship, but our interactions after the service, before the service, our interactions during the week as members of that extended family known as Crestwick Baptist Church. It's the beauty of those relationships that draw people in and make the gospel more compelling. And yes, I agree. We are small and insignificant. We are weak and flawed. But here's a confidence. The same Jesus who sends us out to proclaim his excellencies is sovereign over all things for the sake of his church. He has promised to be with us. And he is with us by his spirit indeed. And that same spirit is dwelling within us, renovating us from within to make us look more like Christ, to bind us to one another so that we would truly be a community of faith that manifests the presence of our Savior. And if you're skeptical of that ever happening, then let's remember how Paul describes our God. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. It's not about us. It's all about God and his infinite almighty power that raised Christ from the dead. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and in me. Shaping, molding, binding us together so that we can fulfill God's purposes. So brethren, let's get to work so that to him, to our God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are our infinite, eternal God who reigns and rules over all and that you have delighted to call us your people, unworthy though we may be. And we thank you that your commitment to us will never fail because you have chosen us not just to be your people and your children. You have folded us into your story so that we might be the means by which you fulfill your purpose 
of glorifying yourself by saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so that we are not just part of the fulfillment of that plan. We are part of the means by which you fulfill that plan. And so, Father, we, we thank you. We pray as we face this coming year. We ask first that you'd work in the hearts of those in our midst who do not know you, that you would bring them to faith, that they too may share in the joy of being adopted as sons into this family, of being joint heirs with Christ. And we would ask that we who are your people, you would continue to do your work in us and that you would work in our hearts so that we would submit to your purposes, that you would guide us into your purposes and that you would unite our hearts around your purposes so that we a church, as a church would truly demonstrate to the world what the new creation looks like so that we may be a compelling witness to your goodness and grace. To that end, Father, we would pray that you would make us a group of disciples who adore Christ, who adorn the gospel and advance the kingdom. And we ask it not for our sakes, but for the glory and honor of your matchless name. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.